0: Before we come to look at this passage together, um, let's just read these last seven verses of of this section. So from chapter 12 of Judges, just the first seven verses of chapter 12. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over towards Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon, and not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim, and the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim, because they said, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim, along among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived, and when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, and they would say to him, then say, Shibboleth. And he would say, Sibboleth. But he could not pronounce it right. And they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. And Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. Well, there's an awful lot there, isn't there? When we read about Jephthah, there's an awful lot to go through, a lot to consider together. There's three chapters, really, that kind of picture and uh, give to us this uh, understanding of who Jephthah was and the time that he lived in. Um, that's why I split it into two. I thought we have to look at chapter 10 first because otherwise it's it's such an awful long passage for us to think about in one. But today with God's help, we'll look together at this passage that we read together, both chapter 11 and 12. What had happened? Well, the Ammonites had been raised up and we've been raised up to oppress Israel. Why was that? Well, it was because of their sin. they have been sinning against God as we'd seen so many times already in the book of Judges. But what did we see last time in chapter 10? We saw that the people had begun to repent the people said in verse 10 of chapter 10 we have sinned against you because we have both because we have both forsaken our god and served the baals so this repentance was from their mouth essentially wasn't it they could see that they've sinned and they've admitted this but that's really as far as the repentance went at this stage that's why god says to them Go and call on to these gods that you've been serving. They'll rescue you, won't they? Then we saw that there was a secondary level of repentance in verse 15, where they came back and said once more, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. But there was more now than just words. In verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And here we see a sort of almost like a secondary step. It's not just Words, they're actually now doing something. They're putting away from them the foreign gods. And then we saw that last phrase from verse 16, which we've already mentioned. God could no longer endure. His soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. It wasn't because there was enough repentance. It wasn't because it was good enough before God. It was that outpouring of his love for the people, for his people. He could not see them suffer anymore. His love is more with greater than even the evidence of repentance. And that's what God is looking for in his people, that they turn back to him. You might think of the example of if if a man was married and his wife was being unfaithful and the man found out about this and she says well I'm sorry I've done something wrong. Is that, is that enough? But then the husband, then the wife rather says, well, I, 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 I promise I won't do it again. I've put all that behind me now. But she has still sinned. But in this instance, God shows that great love for his people, as a husband might show great love for his wife in that situation. And he draws the people back to him. so then after this we have uh, God's plan for deliverance set in motion and that's really what we read together if they are going to have triumph over these uh, Ammonites, how's it going to happen well there has to be a a way and a means but as we shall see it's not without consequences it's not a simple clean cut victory where everything's rosy so I've got four headings, the first really is just an introduction to Jephthah and then, really, just looking at the three main story beats. I can't obviously look at this in great detail. That would take far too, far too long. So, let's look firstly at Jephthah. Who is this man? What do we know about Jephthah? Let's be introduced to him. Well, he is a Gileadite. And we know three things, really, about him that are important to understand. Three things. One, the first thing, he was a warrior. See that in verse 1. He was a mighty man of valor. What does valor mean? Well, it's almost like courageous, isn't it? A man who is is willing to go out, a man who is not shy, not afraid. He was a mighty man of valor. He was a warrior. It was an important thing to be in those days. Secondly, we see he's an outcast. we know from his background that he wasn't a natural son to Gilead and his wife. He was a son born out of a relationship with a harlot, as as the word tells us here. So he was a half-brother to all of Gilead's sons and daughters. He was an illegitimate child. And as such, we see he has no inheritance from Gilead. He wasn't going to be part of his One of his will, there was nothing that was going to ever be given to him. And it seems as if his brothers, half brothers, despised him and they wanted rid of him. And in the end, he is driven away. He flees from before his father's house, it says. So he is an outcast. We thirdly see he's an outlaw. We see this in verse three. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers, dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. So he was bound together with these worthless men. Now, how do do we understand what it means by worthless men? Were they literally like criminals and prisoners? We we don't know. We've not got enough information. Were they just men of low status? Maybe that's true. I don't want to say dogmatically. But he was bound together with these men that were really... They were seen as nothing in society, or whatever that meant. And he had gone together with them, and he went out with them, raiding. And again, what does, what does it even mean by raiding? As you can see in your Bibles, raiding is in, in italics. It's not even necessarily in the, in the text there. So what was it he was doing? Well, we don't know so much, but he was bound together with this group of men, and he was going out with them Somehow. Yet, it's to this man that the men of Gilead go to for a leader. <laughs> How strange this must have been for them. We see this from verse 4 on, the men of the people uh, go out to, to, to meet him. The elders of Gilead say, did you uh, come, verse 6, come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. Where does this come from? He was a a man banded together with worthless men. The family wanted rid of him. And out of the blue, they're asking him to be their leader. Again, we can conjecture about this. It seems maybe that it was God that commanded them. You need to go to this man. We don't know. It's not that clear to us. But they are dogmatic. This is the person they want to rule over them. There's nobody else. This is not a, well, would you consider it kind of request. Have you thought about doing this? Do you want to apply for this job? No, that they're, they're dogmatic about this. You are to be the one to lead us. How strange that is. Uh, this morning, Richard, I was reading from uh, Acts chapter 4 when Peter talked about the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone and that was very much on my own mind here as I was reading this but from a slightly different angle, because it is here the stone that the builders rejected. This is the one that the people had thrown out. They wanted nothing to do with him. Now they are calling him to be their leader. And there's this wonderful picture of repentance here. The picture initially we've seen that repentance is a verbal sense of saying, I know I've done something wrong. And then the secondary sense, well, you might think, well, let's put my life together. Let's sort things out. We'll get rid of this. We'll get rid of that. will clean up this and whatever. But there's that third and most important part of repentance. It's not just about trying to get yourself right. You have to go to Jesus Christ, don't you? You have to go to him. Israel, if they wanted to be free from oppression, they had to go to Jephthah. That's Seems as if that's what God wanted them to do, and that that full picture of repentance there, for you and I, if we want to be free from the guilt and consequence of our sin, we need to go to Christ. He's a warrior and outcast and an, an outlaw, but yet, even though this is true, and obviously he is no, he is not Christ himself. He's not a perfect man. Yet there's a shadow of a picture of what it means to show the people of Israel what repentance means and how it works. What they have to do, go to Jesus. I want to say a few words about his character because Jephthah was very clearly a man of faith. We can hardly deny that at all. If we just look at a few verses that show this, verse 9. Jephthah said to the elders, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? There's no sense of pride there if I defeat the Ammonites. I'm the one that's going to do it. No, he says, and if the Lord delivers them to me. He knows that the battle is won by God. He's a man of deep faith. He knows this. We might also look at verse 11. And Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And then what do we see? And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Now Mizpah was his home. That's where he lived. You see that later on in verse 11. That's where he actually lived, where his home was. And there's a sense where he had this great meeting with these people, great meeting with all the elders of uh, Gilead. And they've come to this conclusion, they've accepted that, He's going to be the one that leads over them. And what does he do? He goes quietly to his home and speaks those words before the Lord in this path. It's as if he's gone to his own home, he has shut the door, and he has committed all this before God in prayer. Again, evidence of a man of faith. And we see it again thirdly in his defense to Ammon, which we'll turn to now. So there we go, there's the beginning. That's our introduction to Jephthah. A warrior, an outcast, an outlaw, but also a man of great faith. So secondly, what do we see? Well, we see his engagement with Amon. There's going to be a, a battle soon. But before that, he tries to reconcile himself to them. He tries to open up a conversation. Very often we see, and sometimes in, 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 in the battles, Somebody gets ready to fight and they just go out and fight. But no, in this instance we see that there was some kind of trade, or not trade, but some kind of talks together to try and get to some resolution beforehand. This is from verse 12 through to 28. and It's a longer passage which we read together, but there's a dialogue that happens there. Ammon speaks first in verse 13. Pretty short message. Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt and they are on as far back as the Jabbok into the Jordan. Now therefore, restore these lands peaceably. It's a bit of an ultimatum there. Give us, give us the land back without hassle and we'll be, we'll be okay. But if you don't give us this land back, there won't be peace. We're ready to fight for this. We're going to take these lands back. That's what they're saying. Now, who were the Ammonites? Well, it seems as if they were descendants from Lot. They should have known something of who God was. They weren't complete strangers to God, at least several hundred years have passed by this point since Lot was alive. But if they'd come from from that descendant from the line of Lot, they should have known. They should have known something of who God was. But in any case... We have this ultimatum. Why is it happening now? Well, it's happening now. Obviously, we know this because this was when God had raised him up for this time. So, that's Ammon. That's their. That's what they say. What does Jephthah say? Well, he makes a very clear counterclaim. He uses a totally different argument. He doesn't say, well, yes, but we had the land before you, or, but we've had it for 300 years and we've done better things with it than you ever could. There's not an argument on that sort of a level. He uses a very different argument. He says, God gave us this land. The reason we've got it is because God gave us this land. We're not talking about an idol here, not just another God, but we're talking about the living God, a God that the people of Ammon should have known about. can't look through the whole thing because there's a lot of talk about how the people moved, about how they went through um, from borders and who they spoke to in this place and then crossing this river and so forth. And it's all we can read about it in uh, the first five books of the Bible and then in uh, Joshua as well. Different battles and different attacks and things that happened. But essentially what he concludes this is in verse 23 he says and now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? God has dispossessed you. God has won this victory and given us this land. So why should you have it? He turned the argument on its head by saying, if you want to fight this out, this is a fight between you and God. Not even a fight between... Um, between me and you. God has done this. And goes on. Will you not possess whatever Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? You've abandoned God. Centuries ago, probably, you've gone to follow this God called Chemosh, whoever Chemosh is. Chemosh is so great, well, ask him to give you the land back. That's who you've gone to serve. That's who you are serving. I have not wronged you you have wronged me. Because God's purposes were all drawn into this land. There was a day coming. We read in the New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ coming. And this was the whole purpose of the land was to build up towards that time when he would come. God had a purpose with this land. God's glory was drawn into this. Our salvation was drawn into this. God's faithfulness, all of this was drawn in together. It's not just land, it's not just real estate, it's so much more than that. But the people of Ammon couldn't see the woods or the trees. They didn't understand all of this. So we read in verse 28, however the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words that Shephla sent him. And so they go to war. We read about it there from verse 29 through to uh, 33 and there's no point For us now to kind of look at it in great detail. But essentially we read that they got victory. That the people of Ammon were defeated. Again this shows the faith that he had. The faith that Jephthah had at this time. That he trusted God. That he understood God's word. That he understood the history. And was able to communicate it in a way. He wasn't just a warrior. Some kind of muscle-bound man who was able to kind of punch but couldn't string two words together. He was a clever, intelligent man who knew God's word and knew God's providence, understood these things in a profound way. But then thirdly, we come to Jephthah's rash promise. And sadly for many of us, this is what he's best known for. Jephthah's rash promise. In the heat of the battle just as he's getting ready to meet the Ammonites verse 30 Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands then it will be that whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now on the surface that may seem or at least it must have to him at the time seem like a reasonable and a good thing to do when he comes home who knows there could have been goats and sheep and things running around the house and maybe that's what he would have expected one of the goats to come rushing out of the house one of the sheep or something like that and he would say ah this i can take out for a for a burnt offering to god that's no doubt what he would have expected But that's not what happened. Because we read in verse 34, when Jephthah came home to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and with dancing. And she was his only child. He had one child, a daughter. And again, this shows something of his character because it seems that many of the the people around that time had Many wives and many large families, but he seems only to have, you know, he's only had one child. So he doesn't seem to have been tempted by the sin of polygamy. This daughter comes out with timbrels, dancing, joyous, because she wants to meet her father. No doubt she is in celebration. She'd been probably planning this. She'd heard of the victory, and father's coming home, and he's defeated the Ammonites. This is reason for celebration. And when she runs out to meet him, what a tragedy. This joy, that moment that should have been joyful for her, turns on its head in an instant. And it came to pass, verse 35, that when he saw her, that he tore his clothes. And said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. How sad, how tragic this is. Yet there is that integrity in his own heart that he says, I cannot go back on my word to the Lord. He knows that he has made a promise to God. This isn't something he can turn back on. So what does she say? She says to him, my father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according which has gone out of your mouth. Because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. So what happened? Does he offer his daughter up as a sacrifice? There are two very different thoughts on this. One is that he would have done, and if we read the text, maybe that's what you might think from the first reading. But the other is that he could never have done this. How could he have offered his own daughter up as a sacrifice? This was what the this is what the the nations would have done. The, the idolatrous nations, they, that's the sort of thing they do. They offer up their children in some way to please God. How could Jephthah have been involved in that? Instead, surely, it seems, because otherwise that would have been murder. That would have been a break of the commandments. Something God could never have accepted. It seems more likely then that he would have been that she was cut off in the sense that. She could never have married. She could never have had children. She would remain childless as a spinster for the rest of her life. And as Jeff only had one child, that too would have cut off his um, line, because he had no, nobody to pass an inheritance to after that. His inheritance and his family and his uh, future were were cut off. Is this a failing on Jephthah's part? Well, in a sense, of course it is. He should never have made a promise like this. He could have easily added a few qualifying words. The first creature or animal that comes out of the house, I could offer that up. But when he goes according to the words that that he has said, then he is trapped in his own words. It's easy to be judgmental and point our fingers to him and say, what oh, a foolish thing to have done. What a stupid situation for us to get caught up in. Um, but there's a lesson for us in this. Proverbs 10, 19 says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. <laughs> in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. So sure there are many times that we've said things and thought, oh, why did I say that? I can't commit to this. Or we've made promises or some promises that we made in our behalf and we think, oh, I can't do that, that's foolish. What a sad thing it is. Let's not be too judgmental on him. And let's look at our own hearts and let's see, where, where, where do we do this? Can we restrain our own tongue? And there's at times when we think, even before God, maybe nobody else even heard this. It might have just been a, a promise that he made in his own heart that nobody else heard and he could have maybe gone away with, but he was showing that integrity before God. I have made this promise to God and I will have to, will have to go through with it. This custom, as then we read, it seems as if the people, her friends, went with her up the mountain to bewail uh, her virginity. And it became, as we read in the end of uh, 39 and 40, it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the glimmerite. What a shame it is that this is what we remember most about Jephthah this foolish promise that he made. And yet there's so much about him that is good. That is how he loved God. He loved God's word. How he was faithful to God. How he knew God's providence. And yet one slip. And that's what we remember. Well, fourthly, let's look just to round us off. There's a civil war erupts. And we see that in in chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. One of the things that Jephthah says to his daughter, you are among those who trouble me. And his troubles don't end here. Because his troubles continue into chapter 12, where Ephraim raised their heads. And Ephraim do something here. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's not the first time they've done this. The men of Ephraim gathered together and they said, why did you cross over to fight against Ammon? He didn't involve us. We weren't invited to to this battle we would have fought it and won it with you. I don't know if you remember, but back in Gideon, they did the same thing. Gideon asks Ephraim to come and fight, and they don't. And then when Gideon gets the victory, they say, why didn't you invite us? And it seems as if the exact same thing happens here. Jephthah says in verse two, my people and I were in a great struggle. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when you saw that uh, you would, When I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my own hands and crossed over. Again, Jephthah is saying, we did. We asked you to come and help. But you don't. And now that it's done and dusted, you want to partake of something. Why is it that you're all riled up about this? Seems as if they wanted to share in that glory. They wanted people to say, well, it's the Ephraimites. So they delivered us. They wanted something of this glory. Ephraim, if you remember, was the second son of Joseph. If you remember, go back to Genesis 48. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And he was to put his hand, his right hand, on the head of Manasseh and his left hand on the head of Ephraim and bless them and bless Ephraim, uh, Manasseh first. Jacob crossed his hands over and blessed Ephraim over Manasseh. And so there's that sense in which maybe sinfully, well arguably it was a sin of Jacob that he preferred Joseph over all of his sons. And so if Jacob prefers Joseph and then he prefers Manasseh, Ephraim sorry, then Ephraim seems to be like the favored son of the favored son. And I think there was something of a pride maybe that was dwelling up in them. A a sense of which we are the greatest of the tribes of Israel. Maybe I'm reaching here, but it seems as if there's something in that. That their pride was wounded that they weren't the ones sharing in this glory of this victory. Do we want our names to be in lights everywhere? As if we are the ones that that matter. And it is God's victory Jephthah could see it was God's victory. Jephthah says, if God gives me this victory, that's the exact word that we saw. The Lord delivers them to me. Not about if I get them, but then Ephraim, they're the ones that seem to want that glory themselves. There's much of that sin that still remained in their heart. So they're defeated. Jephthah defeats them, and then we have this Strange account of them crossing over the rivers when they couldn't pronounce the word shibboleth. They are saying stibboleth I don't know what that means. I didn't have time to look it up, what it means. But it completely doesn't matter. It's it's like the word squirrel in the Second World War. That's how we could tell whether the, the people were German spies when so they couldn't say the word squirrel. <laughs> the same thing. That's how we were able to identify who were the Ephraimites. 42,000 of them were defeated were killed on that day and so the triumph over Ammon and the triumph in this situation is done, it's complete God has rescued the people God has rescued his people and yet what tragedy involved in all of this what sadness The Ephraimites have been killed a huge number of them are, are destroyed and Jephthah himself has seen his only daughter, whichever way you, you understand or or, or or look at what happened, his own daughter cut off. That's why I've titled this Through Tears, Triumph Through Tears, because it's so sad when we read all this, the effects of sin that this has in our lives. Sin is never without consequence. What great tragedy there is here. And none of us are sinless. None of us are without sin. None of us will go through life without tragedy or sadness in some shape or form. But in the midst of it, we see this great picture of repentance. That if we acknowledge our own guilt before God, that we do something about it, but that ultimately that we turn to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that's where we find peace. That's where we find reconciliation with God. And though this world might be through, seen through many tears, yet ultimately there is that great peace. And we will be restored to be with him in a place where there is no tears, where all tears are wiped away. Jephthah rightly has his place in, um, in the book of Hebrews. as a man of faith. I think that, that's abundantly clear. At least it is to me, as I've been reading through this, it's just jumping out. What a man of faith this really is. And It is, it's a tragedy. The thing that we remember about him is the fact that he made this foolish, rash thing. And even when he said this, it wasn't necessarily sinful. It was just misguided. He thought a goat was going to run out. And if a goat ran out of his house, we wouldn't be talking about this. But no, the tragedy is that we remember these feelings. Well, let's put a rein on our tongue, but let's most of all let's repent before him and accept and know Jesus Christ as our Lord. Jephthah was a picture, a shadow, a type of him, but we can see the reality. What a wonderful truth that is. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we come to look at this man Jephthah and Surely we are convinced that he was a man who knew you, a man who trusted in you, a man who had great faith. And yet so sad we are that we read about the tragedies and the difficulties that he faced, but most sorrowful of all is about the words that he spoke, the promise that he caught himself up in around his daughter. Such sadness, Father. Pray that you would watch over us, that you would guard our tongues from Foolish and rash promises. and Guard us. And watch over us that we might repent. Father, give us that true sense of our sin. That we find no rest until we have found it in you. We have found it at that cross. Bunyan pictured so many years ago that guilt and the weight of sin that was in the back of the Christian rolled away when he came to the cross. And may that be our joy to know also. Bless us in this, Father. Help us to trust in you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.